Uh, welcome to Kingdom Family Talk, and this is Leif Hetland. And I'm actually sitting here and looking at two amazing people that are part of our family. Actually, I adopted them quite a few years ago. And, and since then, we, we've had this wonderful journey together. And it is uh, Jason and Kelsey, uh, two of the favorite people that I know in the whole world. And I don't know, even sitting here and looking at them, there's something in my heart that just becomes alive because we have a history together and we have a destiny together. So welcome to Kingdom Family Talk. And my desire even here now is to first of all, start by saying that I do honor you. I celebrate you and I celebrate both of you. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to be able to hear your story. But just for me, knowing that uh, being a Norwegian, we were occupied by Germany for five years. And uh, uh, I, I know that there's people that died on beaches in Normandy. And as a result, we have freedom today. There's other people that pay the price and I'm able to play today. And so that's why I'm sensing even, especially this time on Kingdom Family Talk, I wanted to honor everyone that are servicemen and women and all the family that has been standing behind, the wives that are the heroes, the children are the hero, as people are serving their country and is also helping to be able to create this world to becoming a free place where we can experience freedom because we know biblically speaking, whom the sun set free is free indeed. But sometimes freedom have a cost. So anyway, I just had to say that because uh, Jason and Kelsey, they are here. And I just uh, want you just to share a little bit of your story, a little bit of your background, even bring us all the way back to before even September 11, 2001. And I wanted the audience just to hear a little bit of your testimony and what God has done and what God is doing. Okay. Um, I grew up in Colorado, in Northeast Colorado. So it's, it's farming country. People think of Colorado, they think of, you know, mountains and skiing and this and that. And that is not where I grew up. I grew up on the plains. You can see for miles and miles and miles. And you drive two hours west, you can see the mountains. You drive another hour, you can be in the mountains. So that's kind of where I grew up. As a kid, I grew up playing, you know, sports, your typical childhood. You know, played football, baseball, wrestling, basketball. Stayed active, you know, was outdoors playing with BB guns, riding four-wheelers, doing the hillbilly thing, so to speak. And, um, you know, as a... As a kid, as a teenager, I mean, we all have our, our history of making mistakes. And, you know, I was, I was no different. You know, I got involved in, you know, the party scene, making a lot of poor choices, you know, drinking and doing other, other things. And I actually ended up getting saved at the age of 17. Mm-hmm. We were at a, a youth conference. It was called Power Surge through the, the Nazarene church back then, my friend invited me. And that's when I, you know, got, got wrecked by the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I mean, after that experience, you can say the blinders came off, you know, and I had a completely different outlook and perspective on life. And the, the sad part for me was that I developed a reputation of being kind of a troublemaker and getting, just being honorable, we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the kids in the, in the youth group at that age kind of, they didn't want to hang out with me or associate with me because of my reputation. You know, I can't say I blame them. You know, we're all young and dumb. And, you know, after feeling that kind of rejection, I, I fell back into hanging out with my old friends and making poor choices and slowly but surely fell back, you know, into walking in chair number two, as Leif would say. And, <laughs> 
you know, as time went on, I, well, I turned 18 September 7th, and then four days later, 9-11 happened. And then to kind of circle back as a, as a kid, I grew up, you know, I was born in the 80s, so we had Rambo, G.I. Joe, all the, all the good stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. I had a, a fascination with the military. I don't know why. It just always intrigued me. So 9-11 happened. Initially, I didn't think about joining the military, but I was watching my friends get in trouble and get sent to jail get sent to prison and I saw the writing on the wall and I I knew if I stuck around and continued to make poor choices that I would end up in the same place that they were so you know it was kind of twofold is one to serve my country one to to defend this country in a time of war after 9-11 and the, the second part of, of joining the military was honestly to get a fresh start on life to start over where you know growing up in a small town your reputation precedes you and so by, you know, going to the military, I could go someplace where I could get that fresh break, that fresh start on life. And so then it came to, well, what choice, you know, you go Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. You know, and after reading a lot of Vietnam books, I, I was infatuated with the Marine Corps Scout Sniper Program. And that's honestly was one of my, my goals in joining the Marine Corps to go to the, the Scout Sniper Program. So Kelsey and I were actually high school sweethearts. I met her after I got saved. So she got to see the real me before. Was she she wild like you or was she? (laughs) I'm going to ask her a few questions in a few moments, but yeah. (laughs) No, she, 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 you know, provided the boundaries. I mean, it was was one of those things, (laughs) but uh, she actually, why I ended up not going to the Marine Corps until June 23rd because she was a year behind me in school. So, you know, I, she made me promise that I wouldn't leave until after she graduated. So that's what I did. And so June 23rd, 2003 is when I found myself on the beloved yellow footprints of Marine Corps boot camp. And, you know, that was 13 weeks of fun in the San Diego sun. <laughs> and before you, before you continue here, because I have to throw something over to Kelsey, because my question is, how did you feel at that time period, Kelsey? And where were you at in your journey? Because... <laughs> um. How did I feel? I was frustrated with him for leaving me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I uh, asked him to stay um, for my last my last year of high school because you know we had gone to his proms, we had gone to his dances, and then I didn't want him to leave leave me and uh, leave me without someone to go with and someone to uh, to have fun with. So. Um, it wasn't you, my were you a party girl at that time, babe? Were you no, a party? Girl? No, actually. Um, not not into the party scene really didn't uh, didn't do quite <laughs> as many things as he talks about doing <laughs> like i said I, he was the balloon and i was the anchor so. okay <laughs> so. my wife knows about that one yeah so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, not not necessarily thrilled with with his choice but i guess you know in it for the long haul because i didn't have any um my goal wasn't to separate from him or stop stop being boyfriend and girlfriend just because uh, he was going to the Marine Corps. So we just we're gonna see how I guess time played out and and uh, go from there, really. So so let's get back to San Diego here, Jason. So now you end up in San Diego. <laughs> um, it was a culture shock, needless to say. I mean, there's boot camp in and of itself as an experience. You really can't explain. It's something you have to. <laughs> to go through to get the, the full thing. What they do on TV is not justice. I mean, they, they 
honestly probably couldn't show the real thing. That's, <laughs> it's what makes, you know, Marines, Marines. It's, there was a, a slogan on one of the buses, you know, the title Marine, it's, it's never given, it's only earned, you know? So mm-hmm. going through boot camp, they, you learn Marine Corps history, you, you learn Marine Corps tradition, you learn about the people, the battles, you know, the shoulders whom you stand upon and the reputation that you're expected to carry forward into future conflicts. You know, we don't retreat, we don't quit, we don't surrender, hmm. and you're, you're never expected to give up. And I mean, you you learn the major battles, everything from <clears throat> Bella Wood to, I mean, Okinawa, Tarawa, Guadalcanal. Go ahead. No, just go ahead. I'm just got touched. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm Nobody sorry. You told me I was starting up tearing up for a moment. Well, <laughs> Later on, you're going to find out that Jason cannot see me. I can see him, but that's, uh, I just got teared up for a moment and responded. Anyway, continue. Sorry. So like at, at the end, I mean, you get called everything from, well, we can't say it here, but I mean, the, you can say it. It's his family. Okay. Okay. Let's keep, it's, it's let's keep the rating. <laughs> Okay. I didn't know it was that bad. Okay. (laughs) Go there. But anyway, like you, at the end, when you you lead up to graduation, the Marine Corps, they have an Eagle Eagle Globe and Anchor Ceremony, which is the first time you get to meet your family because they have like a little family day. And then the next day, they actually dismiss you as a actual Marine. And so, I mean, on the Eagle Globe and Anchor Ceremony, it's, it's a special day one because, you know, you get to meet your family. You haven't seen them in 13 weeks but you know they they pin the ega on their uniform you actually get called marine for the first time which is you know a pretty significant thing after everything that you just went through so then you know we graduated the next day some people stick around kelsey was there with my my mom and dad and i didn't want to stick around i'd seen enough of boot camp to last a lifetime mm. and we got an airplane came back home and that was in September. And then why I got two weeks after boot camp to, to stay home before I had to go back to the school of infantry because my MOS in the Marine Corps was infantry. Cause like I said, ultimately I wanted to go to the scout sniper program, <clears throat> excuse me. So while I was home on boot camp leave, I did what they, they said the boot thing to do was, and I actually proposed to Kelsey because you know, we loved each other and we wanted something more than just boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, to hold on to and until we could get, you know, either married in the future, get back together, put it that way. So I proposed, proposed, excuse me, to her. Thank God she said, yes, <laughs> she has patience <laughs> of a saint. <laughs> and uh, I went back to school of infantry out at Camp Pendleton, California. And so there you learn, you know, all the infantry tactics, you actually get slotted to what you're going to be within a, a Marine Corps rifle platoon. You're either a rifleman, machine gunner, motorman, or an assaultman. I was a 0311 rifleman. So that's, I was a school trained rifleman from there. I ended up graduating second in my class and got a, a promotion to Lance Corporal, which you think would be a good thing. Hmm. So you go to the fleet and get picked up with your unit and you have Marines that have earned it the hard way, as they say, you know, three years in the Marine Corps before they got it. So <laughs> my, my reward for my promotion was I got to carry this lovely radio on top of all the other gear that I had to carry, you know, great positive reinforcement, I guess you could say. So I, I got to the fleet, I guess I'll rewind. I was at a school of infantry from October to January is when I actually graduated. And then from there, I got sent to my unit, which was second battalion, fourth Marines. First Marine Division out of Camp Pendleton. 
I got there in January and a month and a half later, we ended up deploying to Iraq. And city we were at in Iraq was Ramadi. Ramadi is about 60 miles west of Baghdad, 30 miles down the road. But let me just stop for one second because Kelsey, I mean, you're engaged at that moment and uh, at that moment when when Jason comes home and says, okay, your thought is wedding dress and wedding cake and it's right. wedding. And now in the next moment, he says, Iraq. That means yeah. there's a chance that Jason might not come home. I know that can happen in traffic, but the chances yeah. is growing when he yeah. mentioned Iraq. Yeah. I'm going to Iraq right now. What, what was some of your feeling and what did you sense? I remember, so I was working, um, I was going to school, going to our, the junior college that's in our hometown. Northeastern Junior College, and then I was working at Subway. <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, entry-level job, paying car payments, you know, extra money to to buy whatever I want, I guess. <laughs> and uh, um, I remember when he called me, because I was actually at work um, at Subway, and I remember when he called me and he told me about that. And, um, man. Did you cry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, and it's like you're you're kind of planning a wedding, but it's not like you don't have a date. You don't, you know, you don't know when you're going to be back. You don't know. You, you can't like solidify anything because yeah, it's all it's all tentative planning. Tentative, because you, know, you don't know when you're going to be back. You don't know if you're going to be back ever. <laughs> um, you know, it's just. It's like, I guess maybe it was a distraction um, from the reality of there's a good chance you may never come home. <laughs> um, but something also to hope for yeah. because you get to look forward to something if everything pans out. The wow. way that yeah, I look forward to it. We're going to hear a little bit more there. But Jason, just continue now when you're landing in Iraq. I mean, just it's a different world. And, and a lot of us, we watch it on TV and everything else, I have a little bit more experience than maybe the average listeners, but just explain a little of the kind of the culture shock because we watched that on TV that you guys going into Iraq, but tell us a little bit about that journey and actually also what happened to you. Well, like we're, like I was saying, Ramadi was the, the capital city of the Al-Ambar province, which was known as the Sunni Triangle. The reason that's important was, you know, obviously Saddam was Sunni, so when he got overthrown, the Sunnis were where a lot of the Saddam loyalists or Republican Guard, you know, all of his people who really, really didn't like us at that time. And I mean, I remember it was ironic when we flew into Iraq, it was on a C-130 at nighttime. So the, you know, Air Force was going to do a blacked out landing with NVGs because we're landing at Takatam, which is an airfield down the road from Ramadi. And so, you know, we, that plane was going sideways up and down you're crammed in the back like sardines and i mean it was it was an ironic roller coaster ride and when we landed it was pitch black so we really didn't get the full effect of you know hey you're in iraq however when we hopped on seven tons and we convoyed down the road into ramadi i mean it was it's hard to explain as you probably know going to third world countries just the levels of poverty i mean you have kids running around barefoot, you have garbage and trash everywhere. You have, you know, sewage flowing down the streets. I mean, their roads consist of everything from cars to trucks, to donkeys pulling carts, to guys on tractors, to, 
I mean, people on bicycles. I mean, when we rolled into Ramada, you had little kids throwing rocks at us just because they didn't like us or they had nothing else to do besides throw rocks at the infidels. I don't know. But um, in 2004, when I was there in March, they, the goal was security and stability operations. So the, the, the main goal was to win the hearts and minds of the people so that we did a lot of security patrolling in the neighborhoods. You know, you're supposed to hand out candy, make a connection with the people to help them rebuild their countries. You saw the same thing kind of going on in Afghanistan. The flip side of that coin was we didn't realize the insurgency that was going on then because it was the early, early stages of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So there was a lot of foreign fighters from everywhere. I mean, you had Iranians, Syrians, Chechens, you name it, they came to play. And so on top of security and, you know, handing out candies and stuff, we would do IED sweeps, trying to find hidden bombs. We would do nighttime security patrols, set up in ambushes. However, the, the tactics of the enemy at that time is, you know, they would only attack us on their terms when they wanted to. And kind of to fast forward, when I had my bad day at the office, in 04, we didn't have the jammers that they had to, you know, block the IED signals from blowing up on us. So we were doing an IED sweep down a road, ironically named IED Alley, known as Route Michigan. So it was right out in front of our compound. And to give you an idea of what it looks like, it was a four-lane highway. So you had two lanes going east, two lanes going west. Those two lanes was divided by a cement median that you could walk on. And on that median, you had these giant concrete flower pots. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reason I'm telling you that is the night before we did that patrol, the IED sweep, the bad guys had gone out and they, they took 40 pounds of P4. It's about the, the amount you'd find in an anti-tank mine. And they buried it in one of those flower pots. Hmm. So like I said, I was stuck being radio operator, which... When you carry the radio, you have a big bullseye on your back. What people don't realize in a firefight, the radio is your lifeline. If that goes down and you have communications cut off, you're done for. So as we're doing a patrol down Route Michigan, because I had the radio, I was on that cement median. My squad leader's behind me. We also had combat engineers attached to us. And the, the kid with us that day was Lance Corporal Wiskowich. We nicknamed him Whiskey because it's easier to say. And so he actually had a mine detector. And so the reason we took combat engineers with, the, with us was because if we found an IED before, we would have to cordon off the area. You'd have to radio back to calling an EOD team, which is basically bomb disposal. However, it took EOD so long to get there, you're just sitting out in the city waiting to get hit by the enemy because it would take them maybe an hour, two hours, if not longer, to get to you. So the combat engineers would carry C4, that way they could blow the ID if we could in place and then continue on with the patrol. So the ID that day was a command detonated one. So there was a you know bad guy with a detonator in his pocket watching us. Ramadi was a city of about 350,000 people jammed in I think 12 square miles. So there's a lot of people in a small place. And as we approached that concrete flower pot, Wiskowicz had the mine detector and he was walking up to it and the bad guy detonated that bomb and so I, I had 40 pounds of plastic explosives that was detonated three feet in front of me off to my right whiskey had to go off directly in front of him and as you can imagine the radio went bye-bye whiskey he unfortunately was killed 
I mean, everything from belly button down is gone. He did not make it. And our corpsman with this, you know, he was working on me. But by the grace of God, what happened was before we got hit by that IED, we actually had an Army medical convoy pass us going down the road to that airfield to caught him. When that IED blew, they, thank God, stopped, turned around, and came back. And like I said, it was a medical convoy, so they had a lot of corpsmen or their docs, whatever they call them, and they actually had radio comms to get a medevac in to pick me up to, to medevac me. If that hadn't happened, I would not be here. I mm. mean, it was a miracle when the bomb went off that I'm still here. Mm. I mean, what it did to me was it crushed the right side of my head. I had shrapnel go through my right eye, destroying my right eye completely. The right frontal lobe of my brain is basically gone. I had shrapnel go into my brain to my sphenoid sinus. My left eye, my lens was shattered. My retina partially detached. I had shrapnel go through my left eye. It missed my optic nerve, but it left me totally blind. I had eight teeth blown out. I was aspirated blood. You know, I had burn marks on the right side of my body from the blast. That was my bad day at the office. <laughs> and from, like I said, they medevaced me from there to initially that airfield that to caught him. From there, I don't remember anything, but they were saying that I was still conscious. I was having a hard time breathing. So they put me in a medically induced coma, medevaced me from there to Baghdad. When I was in Baghdad, that's when they did two craniotomies. So they cut me from one ear across the top of my head to the other ear to deal with the, the swelling of my brain, you know, to take the shrapnel out of my brain that they could. And long story short there, word had gotten back to my unit that I was probably going to die because of the amount of injuries that I had suffered. So they ended up sending my squad leader and one of my friends to be with me. That way, if I died, I wouldn't be alone. <clears throat> and, you know, thank God I'm still here. And uh, they, they finally got me stabilized to the point where they could medevac me to Lunchtool, Germany, spent 36 hours there. And every time they medevac me, they'd keep a body bag with me because I wasn't supposed to make the, the trip. Survived Germany, sent me to Bethesda Naval Hospital out in Maryland. Again, sent a body bag with me. Survived that trip. And in Bethesda, that's where I actually came out of my coma. Had no clue. Oh, excuse me, how long was that after the injury from the time you came out of really your coma? I got hit March 29th in 2004, and I woke up in April. Sometime in April. <laughs> Maybe the first two weeks of April. Um, no, and even for no. some of the ones that are listening here, let me just also for you to be aware. Even I'm sitting here looking at Kelsey and Jason and I had the honor of knowing him for a while. But even when I'm looking at Jason, he cannot see me at all and he cannot see Kelsey. He's still blind. So I just wanted for the audience to, to know. So when we're going back here and there's going to be two parts of this I already know <laughs> just based upon this story. because. But anyway, it, it just touches me. And what I wanted to know also just put a little pause there and throw the ball over to Kelsey. When did you find out Kelsey and what was the first thing you heard and when was the first time you saw him? I just wanted to connect to that. Yeah. Um, okay. So because we were engaged, we're not, I'm not technically his next of kin. Um, so the call went to his parents. Um, so his dad got the call. His dad called me and then um, his dad picked me up at my parents' house, because again, we live in small town, Northeast Colorado, so everybody's real close. <laughs> uh, 
Um, he picked me up and we went and told his mom and that was all on March 29th was when we were told. Um, I'm assuming because of the time change that everything happened. Um, Maybe the 28th, I don't. No, I think I, we're thinking it's still the 29th of March, but um, by that time. That was 2003? Four. Four. Four, four. four. Yeah, four, yeah. 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 Um, so um, that's when we found out. And then the first time that we actually got to see him, um, sorry, I'm looking at the calendar. Um, we flew out to Bethesda, Maryland um, and got to see him. I think it was April 11th. I think it was the evening. And that would have been an Easter Sunday, actually, of that year. Um, wow. We didn't get to the hospital until late, late that evening. Um, but that was the first time we actually got to see him. So almost two weeks. Almost yeah, two I just weeks. remember, because my question would be to you is, I, I know Jason, just being a spiritual papa friend, he, he did something that I didn't necessarily need to see, but he sent me the picture of yeah. him right yeah. after this happened. But I, I mean, I was not even dear and feel, I was not engaged, but explain, what did you see when you first saw him? And what did you, explain a little bit what you felt at that moment. Um, <laughs> I remember walking into the hospital, into the, um, the ICU unit, and most of the units um, have glass, like a glass partition and then no door. Um, he was in a hospital bed. Um, he had, they had his head wrapped, uh, I'm assuming due to the surgeries. He was extremely swollen. Uh, their water retention is what I assume it was from, from the injury. Um, and just lying in a bed, they had his, uh, wrists in like restraints. Um, I'm assuming because of coming, they kind of would drop the dosage of the medicine that would help him stay in a medically induced coma. And so when they drop it, that slight um, tendencies to pull out your IVs, to, and to all pull out tubes, to, to panic, to everything. Um, Okay. <laughs> and for anyone that is listening, this is just a family talk, so the kids are involved here too. So just continue, Kelsey, if you, if you can. And if not, yeah. That was the comedic relief from that the. Was com <laughs> I, I stood. I stood outside the glass, and I just I cried. Yeah. I'll be right there. Just a minute. Just a minute. Kenny. And I cried. I, I I stood there and I cried. I mean, it was to the point, too, when she was at my, my parents' house when the Marine, Marines showed up in dress blues because that was the prep visit. Next time they came is to tell them that I had died. So mm. I mean, it, was, it was very, very, very serious. Wow. Uh, okay, just continue a little bit because I know this has been a long, long recovery process. And when you're sitting here, we're looking at yeah, 15 years ago, and it's even I can still see the tears. I can still feel it. I... And that's what I'm saying. Um, yeah. So just explain what happened from here, Jason. What, what was the first, when was the first time you remember seeing Kelsey, by the way, after this? Um, well, ironically, when I came out of my coma, they were, they were in the room, my, my parents and Kelsey. And like I said, I, I came to, I could not see anymore. So what I see now is just complete pitch black. So I'm not legally blind. I'm what they call totally blind. So I have no light perception whatsoever. And so I, I woke up, like and, I said. And that's, that started after this injury. Since then, you've only seen black for the last 15 years. 15 years. Last thing I saw was Iraq. Yeah. And I mean, 
I mean, kind of funny, but it's funny for us. Marines are interesting people. My buddy Mendez, he's, we always used to flip each other off. So <laughs> he was behind me. So the last thing I ever saw in Iraq was his big ugly mug flipping me the bird. Then I got blown up and it was, it lights out after that. Mm. And so when I came to, like I said, I had no clue where I was, had no clue what happened to me. My head hurt like you cannot believe. I knew I had eight teeth missing. My eye was gone and um, Kelsey and, and my parents were there. And, you know, they, they said that I'd been hit by an IED and I'm just like utter shock. I think scared out of my mind. You know, I'd, I'd, I mean, I went from weighing 180 pounds to 127 pounds because of being in a coma and just, just being atrophied. Mm. You know, I mean, fear set in and it was, it was a nightmare. Mm. And um, <clears throat> you gotta get, I'm gonna make it through this without crying for once. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm crying now, so to say. You cannot see that, so that's. You gotta quit. That's just, you just cry with you. <laughs> I cry with you here. Oof. Yeah, when I start crying, they won't understand what I'm saying. I'll just be a blubbering buffoon. But no, it was like I, I. You go back to the Marine Corps. It's like what you talked about, and you know, you're called the Rain Book that you learn to do, to become, to have. <laughs> And everything that I'd done was shattered. Mm. And my identity was gone. Pause a moment. You want to jump in? No, because you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm laughing with you, but I'm laughing yeah, and crying at the same time. I thought only women could do that. But anyway. <laughs> but I mean, like everything that I, you know, thought I was, you know, was gone. You go from being a Marine to being 127 pounds. Uh, blind guy who can't defend himself, can't do anything. I'm pretty much a drug addict. That came later. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, life, it got to the point where I lost hope. You know, how, how can I survive? What was I supposed to do for a job? I knew she wasn't going to leave, but it's like, you know, the thoughts run through your mind because you're scared. <clears throat> and it got to the point where my dad was pushing me in a wheelchair and I told him to push her out in the traffic because I didn't want to live. I lost hope. <laughs> Thank God he didn't listen, right? But um, it was, it was, like I said, a nightmare. You know, we did the best we could to keep God in the center, but it was still, it was still rough. I was so sick. And um, I mean, honestly, the doctors told my parents and Kelsey that it was truly a miracle that I was still alive because there's nothing that they could have done to keep me alive. They did everything they could. And then it was a miracle that I knew who I was. It was a miracle that I could walk and talk, <clears throat> excuse me, like a, a normal person because of the brain injury. Hmm. And um, like I said, it was, it was, it was a nightmare. So then <clears throat> from there I went to, they actually medevaced me to Craig hospital up in Denver, Colorado. They wanted to send me out to California, to Palo Alto, just to make it a, a more of a seamless transition, military speaking, to get me out. However, my parents and Kelsey couldn't, you know, obviously be out in California with me. And so, you know, by the grace of God, you know, my parents met a congressperson's wife who could pull some strings and they got me moved to Denver so I could be closer to home. But, you know, Kelsey, she hit my bedside and she never left, mm. ever. 
they had to force her to go home when we got home because she needed to take a break. But I mean, it was maybe a few days, you know, and she, she stuck by my side. I got to, to Denver and because of the, obviously the, the pain from the traumatic brain injury, the surgeries, they had me on Dilaudid, given through an IV as well as fentanyl patches. So I was basically drugged out of my mind. You know, I was on my own little drip system. So every two to three hours I was pushing the button because I'd get a headache. Ironically, one of the side effects when you come down off of Dilaudid is it gives you a headache. So, and they, they told me you can't go home until you get off this, this Dilaudid. Obviously we can't send you home on an IV with a drug like that. So Mother's Day, so now fast forward to May, I don't remember the date I got transferred from Bethesda to Craig, but now we're into the May time frame. And um, on Mother's Day, I decided I was gonna quit. I wanted to go home. So I quit cold turkey. And I was sick before puking. They couldn't figure out why. I mean, I was just throwing up constantly. Couldn't keep any food down. That didn't help me put on any weight. So and I look like a skeleton, but when I quit Dilaudid, I mean, good Lord almighty, I went through withdrawal symptoms similar to that of a heroin addict. And I was, I mean, that was bad in and of itself. Mm. And I mean, we, you know, we prayed through that. I mean, a cool little saying that I don't know who came across it, whether it's Kelsey, my mom, whoever, but it was, don't tell God how big your problem is. Tell the problem how big your God is, but it boils down to perspective. You know, you got to keep him in the center through the crazy roller coaster that it was. And I mean, I went to withdrawal symptoms for maybe about a week. And then I finally got out of the hospital June 2nd. Because I was so sick, I still had shrapnel on my body that they couldn't take out. So I was scheduled to go back, I think the 16th. And I go back and I had shrapnel on my face and a piece of my groin on the right side. And long story short, they took rocks out of my face, like I said, but the doctor had cut up in my groin and what was basically wrapped around my femoral artery was a piece of feces, a piece of poop. And it was either from the IED itself, from the dirt, but I mean, it had been in my body for two months and not once caused an infection. If that would have gotten to my bloodstream, I'd have been done. Mm. It was actually holding my femoral artery together. So when the doctor took it off of my femoral artery, it snapped in two in the operating room. I mean, I could have bled out if that would have happened at home. And I mean, he, he patched me back up. And like I said, if God can, you know, take a piece of crap and save my life, imagine what he can do if he gave me your heart wholly and completely. Come on. That was, <laughs> backstory was, was a doctor made me make a deal with him because he was an army Vietnam doc. And he told me if he could keep one piece, I can keep the rest. And he wanted the one on my leg. So he got the crap in the stick literally on that deal. So I got rocks <laughs> and he got a turn, you know, God bless oh, you. But, um, Oh. I mean, from there, I had to, you know, I went back home to Sterling where everybody knows what's happened because it's a small town. And now to kind of double back, so I don't make this too confusing. While I was in the hospital, actually it wasn't until we got home. I got hit March 29th of 2004. April 6th is when the initial battle of Ramadi kicked off. And that day, third squad, or not, third squad excuse me yeah it was third squad they they basically got all of them killed in the ambush except for a few so i mean i came home 
And this is right before the 4th of July. And I find out, you know, all these people have been killed and wounded while I'm stuck here. And I mean, it's dumb the way it sounds now, but I mean, the feelings of guilt and shame that you have because you're here and they're there, you can't explain it. I mean, it's, you have survivor's guilt. You have the shame that you made it. They didn't. You wish you could have been there. You play the what if game, which is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do. It will never get you anywhere. And so, I mean, I remember that first 4th of July, I sat down and cried. Hmm. And um, that was, that was a hard thing to swallow, but they, they persevered on. They came back in, I think, August. When it was all said and done, we had 34 Marines killed, and uh, I think there was 250 Purple Hearts handed out. I mean, we were, at that time, one of the hardest-hit units in that war. Hmm. And um, from then, it kind of, like I said, my identity of everything that I had based my life upon was gone. And now I had a different kind of shame, and I was being blind. I mean, I was very, very reluctant to use my cane in public because now it's no longer one of you. I was one of them, part of the disabled, you know, so then that kind of developed its own inferiority complex of if I thought I had to prove myself before, now I have to do it even more so, you know? So, I mean, I got home in June. I started learning Braille in July. We bought a house and got married August, September of that same year. You know, I finished learning Braille in April. I went off to buy rehab in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was down there for two months, and I was back in school August of 2005. But I was determined to, to prove my worth to people because I felt I had to measure up again. You know, so I, I went back to school and got my bachelor's in psychology, and I mean, my goal was to get a 4.0. I got a 3.95, but it was close enough. But, you know, I... Even doing that, when it's all said and done, it still leaves you feeling empty inside. You still have, you know, it's because on one hand, you want to prove your worth to people. But then on the other hand, it's people make such a big deal about it. How did you do that? You know, that's amazing. It's like I went to school the same way you did. It just takes me a lot longer because I have to listen to audiobooks rather than, you know, I can't skip the pages. But I mean, the end result is the same. I still had to be disciplined to do my homework. I still had to write out my papers. I, I had to learn to ask for help when I could, you know? And like I said, it still leaves you feeling empty inside. Mm. Go on, jump in. Yeah, just, uh, I was just thinking about because to, to some degree, you're healing us of all of our troubles. And it's like, if anyone is listening, that's kind of what I feel myself. And I've heard your story a few times on different angles, but every time what it does, first of all, you get a gratitude list yourself of, of, of just all, all of the things you can be grateful for. And second of all, I think it puts a lot of things in perspective. I hope you enjoyed part one of our Kingdom Family Talk with Kelsey and Jason Murray. And I also encourage you to join us for part two of this podcast as Jason and Kelsey, they share how the power of forgiveness has brought healing and true freedom in their lives.